Don't go breaking my heart. I couldn't if I fried. Oh, honey, when I get the breakfast. Black pudding, you're not that kind. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Welcome back to another Ag Watchers. We've got another guest this week. It's very unusual, Matt, for somebody to be allowed on the podcast twice. That's it. They're going to be very special people to but come on twice. They begged and pleaded. Yep. Yeah, and, and try the hardest to get on, and but and got- also also I've kind of, I had to kind of listen because in in one capacity it's kind of like the boss lady for me in, in one thing that I do, so I had to disagree, didn't I? The, the queen of the sheep, Bonnie yep. Skinner. That's it. Thanks, and, gents. It's very generous, very generous indeed. <laughs> and the uh, another episode with new new music, Bonnie. What did you think? I mean, I, I definitely try and stick to your day jobs as much as possible. I, I think your strength is probably, you know, within, I think, within markets. Um, but, you know, I applaud uh, the initiative and the confidence that it obviously takes to record something like that and put out into the universe. So We've been, we've been, we've been practising all morning. <laughs> we practised we practice, like, pretty much all day in a car yesterday. As well, we're, I'm, as I'm we're actually driving. quite... Matt's got a very lovely higher register, which is, oh. um, it's very impressive, the notes that you're able to hit. Andrew's <laughs> remarkably because, tone deaf. So. It's a talent. And, a, and Matt uh, is, Matt's obviously been neutered at some point. So. We <laughs> actually have. So. I have been. <laughs> the, yeah. uh, so this episode today, uh, Matt and I thought that we would do a special episode today. And we'll talk all about me. Mm. <laughs> and, it's um oh. we needed to we actually need to actually sing happy anniversary to Andrew, don't we, Andrew? Twelve years yesterday or today, depending on time zones, that I arrived in Australia and subsequently lost my accent completely. And so I'm a oh. true blue Aussie now. So let's start the podcast by talking about me for next let's let's say one minute for every year. Right. <laughs> Carry on. It doesn't have to be anything good, though, does it? I mean, we can just launch into into the, the negative side, right? Not much good to say, is there? I mean, I have questions as to, to why you've been here so long and um, how you got in in the first place, really. Oh, that's an easy right. thing. Let's not talk about that <laughs> in case Border Force are listening. The, the backpacker, the backpacker what is it? Um, you've, you've extended that out, so you're on the, on the run now. Yeah, you just said you're you're, try, you're trying to lose your accent. So, um, <laughs> what's that about? I'm on the lamb. So why you That's why you change your hairstyle and beard all the time. Different looks, just so you can keep one one step ahead from border force. Keeping ahead of the visas. <laughs> uh, but anyway, let's let's move on because mm-hmm. because this is a serious podcast. As anyone listened to the last four minutes would realise. Six cents. All right, Bonnie, you've done this before. Psychological yep. test. We'll see if you're compass mentis, mental, or whatever. Sure Matt, thing. Matt will go first. Favorite band? Uh, Led Matt and Andrew. Zeppelin. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I have many, but if I have to pick a band, uh, yeah, Led Zeppelin, I'll go with. 
Matt's fashion sense. Oh. <laughs> Needs Not- improvement, you know. Really. I, would have gone, I would have gone non-existent, so that's very kind of you, Bonnie. Well, <laughs> I'll try and be a little bit nice, but, yeah, I'd love to take you, you know, on a shopping trip and um, get you out of Lowe's would be great. Mm. 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 <laughs> Tra- traceability. <sighs> There's been a lot of exciting developments in that space lately, obviously super important um, and very misunderstood, probably a poor cousin to biosecurity. Mm. Interesting. The Scottish accent. Favourite part about coming on the podcast. Electronic identification. You weren't expecting a compliment, were you? Uh, Electronic identification. Yep. um, Not that difficult to understand, but lots lots of myths around it. Hmm. Have I got another one? Oh, I can't remember. I've lost track. Might as well do one anyway. Black pudding. Goes great with bacon and brown sauce on a on a sandwich. There we go. I would have said taddy scones and I would have said tomato sauce because I'm not from the east coast of Scotland. <laughs> right, oh, let's get into the actual serious talk of traceability there's been a lot happened actually since we had you on the podcast we had you on the podcast in may when we were ahead of the game so to speak we were talking about fmd before it was cool and uh, then fmd blew up and that became a, a talking point for everyone and now at that point we were talking about traceability in reference to fmd and now traceability and eid tags is now moving to mandatory yeah, um, look, never waste a, a potential crisis, I suppose. But um, from our perspective, you know, it's something that uh, industry has been working on for, for many, many years. So it's it's pleasing to see the progress uh, that's being made after all this time um, and some, some genuine commitment put forward by ministers on the 20th of July, which so happened to be my birthday, actually. Uh, and it was pleasing to hear that announcement. Um, so yeah, it's been a long time coming, but, um, and that's something I get asked a lot is why we don't have it already, I guess, but, uh, it's so why, why, now why, to be why did it take so long? It. What was the holdup? Well, there's, there's probably a couple of reasons for that. I think, uh, EIDs for the sheep industry have been looked at for a long time, obviously, since they were introduced for cattle. Um, a lot of work was done sort of 2008, 9, 10, around then. Um, by particularly New South Wales government and um, and Victorian government were looking at it as well uh, to pretty much understand how the the existing software and the tech could be rolled out for the sheep industry and sheep industry had a, a couple of unique challenges I guess with regards to um, particularly the high flow through rates that you see in in sale yards you take some of the bigger sale yards we're looking at 60 70 80 thousand head of sheep so Uh, At the time, back then, really the software capability just was not there to read sheep at the required rate. Um, And and Victoria kind of continued its efforts to have a little bit of a look at it. But once Victoria decided to implement in 2017, uh, a lot of the the solutions that have been developed by the tech providers in the background really had to become commercial um, very quickly. So, you know, Victoria has given us a very good uh, test case study 
And so it's been our little guinea pig and um, given us a really good opportunity in the, in the broader industry to have a look at how well is it working and, um, you know, what would we need to do to roll it out nationally? A couple of important questions there, which now sort of have been satisfied, I suppose, to a certain extent uh, by decision makers. Bonnie, uh, um, Bonnie what, um, like, we've seen now, and it's, it is pleasing that we have got some proper movement in terms of getting a national plan rolled out for, for, for sheep. Um, how long is it going to take, though, realistically? It's not going to be something we can just do in the next few months. No, <laughs> when we uh, when it was proposed to government as a as a potential reform recommendation, and it was EID for all FMD susceptible livestock species back then. Um, the request back in twenty twenty was that it you know implementation be started in twenty one and completed by twenty five. Um, so by twenty twenty five is twenty five twenty six is still what's being talked about as a target date, uh, but nothing's set yet, and obviously can't happen overnight. Um, that being said, I, th I think, you know, there's lessons to be learned out of the way that Victoria implemented its system um, and how long it took to do that, given that some of those solutions weren't ready yet. Uh, and there was a, a very um, big need to get people across the concept, whereas, you know, there's probably some time savings there now, um, but, you know, lots of considerations. So it's still a little while away, but we're, we're in the hardest phase now of, of figuring out the logistics of just what that looks like. When did Scotland bring out EIDs for sheep? That's a good question. It goes back to around FMD um, timeframes, certainly in the years following the FMD outbreak. You might have to consult Dr. Google on that one to double check the exact date that that happened. But they don't have, he, he, but they, he, knows, he, know, he knows the answer. I reckon Bonnie's just asking that question just to be, you know. No, I, I don't know the exact date, but, but it's interesting because <laughs> they don't have mandatory EID for cattle. No, no. Why, why not? They're looking at that now. I actually am not sure of the answer to that question um, as to why the move hasn't been made for cattle. I know they're looking at it now. They've certainly also been looking at ultra-high frequency technology there as well. Um, in the in England, uh, the requirement is for, for everything to be tagged with a, a low-frequency device. So um, they're making plans to move down that that pathway. I've seen the announcements coming out. I'm not sure off the top of my head what that implementation timeframe looks like, though. So what are they doing here, low-frequency or high-frequency? Low frequency is the, the technology that we talk about here in Australia um, because it's ready to implement now and um, the existing systems are, are in place to support that. Yeah, that was one, I mean, that was one of the issues with the, like some of the delays, I guess, wasn't it? There was reluctance to run with low frequency just because, you know, is that going to be the technology that's going to carry us through into the future? But what are your thoughts on that? Like, you know, there's even things like... Um, you know, facial recognitions coming through now with certain technologies. Are we rushing into something? Are we going to quick? Yeah, should, should we wait till the next technology comes out that is even better? Why don't Why don't we just wait till Scotland's tried everything? Because <laughs> as a country of innovators, let them be the early adopters, and then we'll just pick it up in two thousand thirty. We we could. I, I think uh, this is something that gets brought up a lot in our discussions that we've had about this system and, and a move to the right technology and, and fears, I guess, over implementing uh, what's seen as um, old technology. Um, but I suppose the, the the way that it's looked at is that, um, you know, waiting until a, a potentially a better solution comes along or is developed, um, it, really the interim risk of, of doing nothing, it's way too high, especially if we consider, you know, the, the risk posed by the geographical closeness of FMD at the moment. Does that make um, a difference? the geographical closeness of FMD. Yeah. 
doesn't matter oh, if it's in Indo- or if it doesn't matter if it's in Indonesia. It's the only difference is twelve hours or eighteen hours on a flight. Geographically, it's still yeah. too far away. Well, it is. We are lucky to be separated by a lovely ocean. Um, it has, you know, the potential risk has increased slightly. Uh, I think it, though, FMD is is still the doomsday scenario that those of us in industry have been preparing for 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 many decades. And so, if anything, it highlights the importance. And the fact of the matter is, is that our systems require improvement now. Um, so I think waiting um, for something better to come along, how long is that going to take? Um, and again, what's that risk factor of operating a system um, that really doesn't meet the standards that we put upon ourselves? So, you know, we have, we have obligations that we need to meet as industry um, under our emergency disease arrangements, uh, cost-sharing arrangements um, that sort of stipulate we're, that we're obligated to make sure these systems are working as best as they can. I guess right now, um, I guess. I guess too, Bonnie, by by that argument saying, oh, well, the better technology might be just around the corner, but with that argument, we would be waiting all the time. We we'd, 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 still, we'd still be in the caves if we waited for the technology. We'd still be, <laughs> we'd still be waiting for somebody to invent electric fire instead of striking two matches together. I think I think also the, the risk is that, you know, we can't just see these systems as being something that's static in time. Um, so I think, like, you know, when we're talking about the actual transition from a mob-based visual system to individual identification, everything that's uh, required and involved in that, you know, it's a pretty significant change once you start looking at management of sheep on an individual level. And so, you know, through the work of, of our service providers like Integrity Systems Company, obviously there's a lot of new technology that's being being explored um, that probably have the, has the capacity to do a, a lot of cool things down the track. Um, and I guess by making these improvements now, um, and, and these, these, these technologies have got to be accessible and practical, right, too. They've got to be nationally consistent. They've got to be underpinned by standards and, and their performance demonstrated. Um, but I think, you know, once we move that system to one that's premised on individual ID, that's going to be able to um, more easily accommodate new technologies as, as, as it's developed. And with, I guess, with the with the sheep facial recognition kind of system, it would take some time to train the sheep to stop and smile at the camera. So you got to you got to stand in front of one of those white background only, no glasses, no hats. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, you're not, no you're not, filters. You're not allowed to smile either. You've got to be. Uh, yeah. Because no, it would it ruin the straight face like me. Okay. So well, actually, not... we kind of we might want them to smile so that we can see their dentition and age yeah. them accordingly. Yeah, that's true. To decide whether they're hoggets yet or not. <laughs> so who's who's going to pay for that's it all? Right. Isn't this just going to bankrupt farmers? This extra cost. Well, <laughs> I think um, losing our export markets might bankrupt farmers, and um, you know things like foot and mouth disease might bankrupt farmers. I, I think um, you know it's. When we talk about the value of traceability systems, I, I do think it's something that probably um, has has not translated well across the years in terms of implementation of NLIS, and that goes for, for all species. Um, I guess the way that we look at it is that, you know, the benefits of traceability and the value that that gives people and, the, you know, the prices that you see at your farm gate um, are all attributable back to systems like traceability. And so, you know, really it's incumbent upon all sort of sectors of the supply chain to recognise that value and invest in it accordingly. So we sort of believe that it should be a equitable cost-sharing arrangement um, that's borne by industry and producers, state and territory governments and federal governments to, to fund these systems. 
um, because we all serve to benefit if they're they're working correctly um, is is probably what we need to how we need to look at it. But you know, um, what are the requirements for implementing a system like this? We know it's going to be expensive, uh, particularly up front with all of the infrastructure and the hardware that's required. And so we need to look at what that co-investment looks like um, and how that could be implemented across everyone in the supply chain. And, and it's not just upfront investment either. Um, it really needs to be sustainable uh, in the long term, which has been a weakness of our system so far. Is, um, you mentioned traceability a few times as well, which is uh, yeah, pretty crucial. And like we said at the outset, that it, it sometimes takes a bit of a backseat to biosecurity, but they're kind of a bit hand in glove, the traceability is required for the biosecurity aspect. Um, but what would you say if we, if we got the system in nationally, would there be other benefits that could be accrued with a, with a national ID thing other than you know, biosecurity that traceability can give us? Are there other things that, that it kind of can, can benefit farmers? Yeah, certainly. I think that's the exciting thing, right? I mean, we have we have the NLIS for market access and uh, biosecurity reasons for, for trade. Um, but, you know, really, I guess we're looking at rolling out a system whereby we're moving, you know, millions of sheep <laughs> to an individual identifier and the data that's associated with that. What are the opportunities that are available through the collection of that that data that sort of go beyond those types of outcomes? Where do they go to, to business outcomes? And I, I guess... You know, in, in our consultations on a lot of this, we're always very encouraged to, to not put forward um, the benefits of EID for things like on-farm management, capture of, of data there for whether it's genetics management, you know, labour-saving, um, a bunch of other opportunities that exist there. However, you know, how about it if we have this system um, whereby we've got individual ID for all the sheep? does that create a pretty amazing adoption opportunity um, for a lot of these things? Um, and, and how can we harness that? I think for us in, in the lamb industry, we also look at, I guess, you know, this <laughs> move towards this mythical value-based marketing system um, whereby, you know, hopefully one day producers will be paid on, on the price signals for the quality of the product that they produce. Or, and, um, dis- that will or, all be, or, or discounted. Discounted if they're shit farmers. Or discounted, that's right. Winners and losers. And um, all of that will be premised on, on you know, accurate individual identification. Of us, if so how, how, how many sheep movements, this is a, I don't expect you to answer this one, but this could be an interesting one for somebody to answer at some point. How many sheep movements are there a year in Australia that require, <laughs> that require somebody to fill in a piece of paper? Um, wow. There's significant, a... <laughs> there's, there's significant ones actually. Um, just looking at, I mean, even you look talk about livestock movements. I was at a conference up in Queensland not long ago, and there aren't that many sheep up in Queensland, but they did have it was a Queensland government official that was talking about the NILS system and looking at livestock movements through sale yards, you know, direct to farm from you know, abattoirs and backwards and whatnot. So the numbers of movements that they were saying, and this was just for Queensland, was astronomic in terms of the volumes that were going, and some of them were cattle. But I would suspect if you look at sheep numbers, they'd be even bigger. And you're talking tens of thousands a day are going around the country and interstate, right? So I'm, I'm, just um, think, I'm just thinking of how many work hours would be saved over the course of a year across Australian agriculture. And then you think about at the same time, we've got a, a wee bit of a labour crisis. So how many million or probably billion hours a year is taken up with paperwork, which could be done within... Beeper, beep, beep, beep. I don't know. Well, that's that's a question for that's you, Bonnie. I thought you'd have known that off by heart. 
Yeah, you know, I should because it's uh, the amount of reports that we have that uh, report that number should be at my fingertips. But we certainly do look at, I guess, the proportion in particular of lands that go, you know, direct to works over the hooks and um, and through sale yards as well and what those so, numbers look like. So I had a discussion with somebody the other day in the Barossa uh, about EID tags and they were a bit against EID tags. And one of the points that they made, and I don't know whether it's pertinent or not. I they're, think they're, I, probably, they're, they're probably not good for grapes, though. You would want to have EID tags on grapes. So. No, but you've got to trace <laughs> them. It's a high-value product. Uh, so they, they, their point, which I don't, think they were, I don't think they were correct, but I'll let you be the judge of it because I'll stay in my, stay in my lane. Because I'm not, obviously, I'm not a, 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 a policy council member or a CEO of sheep producers, so I'll just step back. I'll, I'll launch the question. But I'm a sheep leader. Uh, why should why should a lamb be tagged if it's just going to get culled? If it's just going to get slaughtered at an abattoir? <clears throat> yeah. What? So this. Sorry. Sorry. Go on. No, that was it. You mean you mean this, like, the, the like if, it's, gonna... if, if it's going if it's going straight from the paddock, it's been it born, born. It gets born. It gets raised. It goes straight over the hooks. That's it. Yeah. So what, yeah. why do you need why do you need a tag for it? Why do you need traceability? I mean, this is something that comes up a lot in our discussions around the system and certainly every time that the system's looked at being reformed, particularly with the ID, uh, the issue of, of tag exemptions does always come up. And so for me, there's a couple of things in this. Um, I mean, at its simplest, no NLIS identification, which is your tag, means no opportunity for traceability. But I think also thinking about it in the terms of the risks that we're trying to to manage with regards to having a traceability system in place extend to biosecurity risks and uh, risks, you know, that happen in terms of um, lots of animals being exposed to different animals, which happens a lot in our sheep supply chains. Um, but also, you know, remembering that uh, one of the biggest things that underpins our traceability systems is our is our food safety quality assurance programs and um, the issue of residues and tracing residues back through our supply chains, which make up a very, very important part of our trade agreements. So I guess when you think about, you know, um, lambs that go direct to works, uh, little opportunity for mingling with other livestock along the way, obviously. Um, but, you know, <laughs> lambs are lamb, sheep are sheep. Uh, once those lots go into a lairage, um, they're what's, often what's a mixed lairage? with when they're waiting. area. <laughs> the waiting area. Yeah, Wait, the waiting process. room before, waiting the, waiting before, room. They go, before the they final have waiting room. Yeah. Before they have their yeah. worst day in their life, yes. Um, one, the other thing I'd, I'd probably add to that in that uh, whole spectrum too, though, is if you've got Andrew lambs with tags on them that can be scanned as they're going through the abattoir and then, you you know, with the growth of this kind of objective carcass measurement technologies and reporting then back to the farmer as well, to the producer, you can get a better picture as to which of your lambs perform better in terms of carcass carcass measurement and and if that can help you then as a farmer to you know improve your improve your kind of production um in terms of the, the lambs you're producing because you can then target well these lambs in my in my group of uh, the flock that i sent off these ones perform really well and i can look at my genetics to try and target certain carcass traits right as well that you're going to get re rewarded that's, for that's, right? that's or, you, part or, of it. or you can get discounted so yep. you can get discounted. The, the thing is, though, if we're talking about tracing actual sheep, um, once those sheep go into that lairage, 
there's, you know, often they get mixed with other incoming sheep that come from different places, you know, the way they get sorted before they're processed. Um, and sheep jump pens, sheep move mm. around. There's no way of knowing or there's no guarantee that then those sheep are going to be from those that, that property that they came from with that pick. And so, you know, think about it in context of the context of a, a residue that's detected mm. way down the chain once the thing is already cut up into many different pieces. You need to trace that animal back properly. And that creates a, a massive complication in that, that situation. Mm. Um, and we've found where, you know, in, in our previous exercises where sheep, sheep or lambs are not identifiable at all, um, traceability is completely, completely lost in those instances. It's been a big reason as to why we've seen, you know, poor numbers in some of the, the assessments that we've run. Um, so you've got, I mean, for us, I think it's also would be reassuring a regulator that, you know, um, that actually those untagged animals would end up direct at the processor. So there's there's quite a few considerations there. Um, you know, agents in particular have also brought up, I guess, concerns that, you know, anyone that was buying and selling through a sale yard would be unfairly disadvantaged by that. Um, and, and I think it does make enforcement, you know, particularly complicated. Mm. Um, and, and as Matt said, I think commercial benefits that flow through, um, you know, <laughs> are not going to be recognised in that sense. Why can't you, the, the chips, yeah? Mm. Microchips. Mm-hmm. Like the RFID tags, yeah? You know, I, I saw a documentary on YouTube about these guys who put RFID chips into their hands so that they can open doors and stuff automatically. I think they call it uh, bio arts or something, yeah? Anyway, it's quite interesting. Why can't we inject them? Because if you look at, they must fall out, the ears. I know if if we put I was talking to Matt about it the other day, if we put them in the pig's ears, they'd all get ripped out, yeah? Mm. So why can't we just inject them? Well, it's it's certainly something that's being looked at. So, you know, microchips have, have been talked about for a long, long time um in livestock. Um and I guess similarly to bolus technology, um, big concern is always around the food safety aspect for when those animals end up at the abattoir. Um, you've got to be able to easily locate uh, where those microchips are and they've got to sort of not pose any food safety risks. The traditional microchips, you know, made up of glass and um, other probably non, non-ingestible materials. Uh, and the challenge in livestock has been in terms of where to in- inject them, insert them, implant them, um, has been putting them, finding a spot where they don't actually migrate around the, the animal's body. Mm. So they, and I believe... Could even be a, a Scottish study that was. It done. will be. I can almost guarantee. Can't remember. <laughs> that or the English. Uh, they did do some work no. a little while ago um, to look at you know implantation sites for microchips and looking at you know a couple of places around the body that could could work. So you know base of the ear, right up under the armpit, a couple of those different spots, um, and or the, found the, the, under the leg pit, <laughs> the groin, yeah, area. Um, so well, they don't have you know, they don't have arms technically, do they? they got <laughs> no, 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 I'll call it an armpit because that's <laughs> that's what I want to call it. Yeah. Um, and uh, they found that they sort of don't migrate from those spots, but they. Uh, I, uh, the other thing is the material for the microchip. So there's there's also been a fair bit of work done in recent times around a sort of a polymer kind of a material that could be used for for the microchip that would be a little bit safer. Um, but still the issue remains in terms of, you know, extracting it out of a, um, an abattoir and out of wherever it ends up. But I think the other consideration too is, um, is I guess, teaching people 
to be able to implant that safely in accordance with welfare expectations and all those considerations as well. But God, I hope we don't have ear tags in the future because, of course, ear tags can can and do fall out. So, I mean, that that technology needs to be looked at. Hmm. So, how are they going to put on all the tags and all of the goats? How does that work? Well, the earless goats might be the ones to get an exemption, I'd say. <laughs> Although the goat goats industry has been looking at a hock tag uh, strap um, to trial with those guys. So goats, yeah, goats. Um, so currently under the national um, the NLIS sheep and goat standards, oh, yeah. anything that's rangeland harvested goats uh, have an exemption for tagging. Um, and I think there are slight differences between states and territories in terms of uh, how that works and, and the, the permits that are required, uh, but everything else is required to be tagged. Mm. So the you know. rangelands goats that used to be, used to be known as feral goats, but when when you call them rangeland, <laughs> they get a they get a premium all of a sudden. Um, but that's a good point, though. With the, obviously the feral goats that get used, um, you know, it's going to be a bit tricky to have tags coming on them. But camels the other, as well. Yeah, the other argument is though, with regards to those feral animals, is you know, are we are we are we wasting our time with this stuff and 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 traceability and EID tags if we've got feral goats, feral deer, feral pigs all around the place that could be spreading FMD anyway if it got in? Yeah, this is something that comes comes up a lot, and certainly, you know, the work that's been done in other countries um, that have wild boar populations and other wild animal populations. Um, they've never really been extensively implicated in the spread of FMD between livestock. I mean, spread of <clears throat> something like foot and mouth disease between susceptible livestock species remains, you know, the, the principal route of, of infection and transmission. Um, we also know when pigs get sick <laughs> with something like foot and mouth disease, and that, there has been a fair bit of work done on this in Australia to sort of understand what the modelling would look like and, and the risks. Um, you know, the, the working theory is that, that pigs get pretty darn sick with foot and mouth disease and they, they tend to go off somewhere and be sick um, before trotting off on their merry way again. And, and the important thing is with pigs, of course, is that they don't remain reservoirs of infection of foot and mouth disease. But um, my good uh, friend and colleague, Andrew Henderson, always says, you know, Who? just because you can't defend Andrew Henderson. Don't remember him. <laughs> He says, you know, just because you can't defend 10% of your kingdom doesn't mean you should neglect the other 90%. And I, I think, mm. you know, as somebody that's working in an industry body, we have uh, not just an opportunity but a responsibility to address the big chunk of the risk profile um, and we have to control what we can control. And I, I guess it's, it could be seen as negligent if we don't. Um, I, I do think this argument tends to be used as a little bit of a red herring, to be honest. Mm. Um, and uh, and I just think, I guess, well, and, and our board thinks as well, if, if we're held in front of a, <laughs> an inquiry, I don't think that argument stands up. Well, we, you know, we couldn't, um, we couldn't do anything about the 10%, so we didn't really just, we just didn't worry about the 90. It doesn't mm. really wash. But if you, yes. want to hear, if you want to hear from Andrew Henderson himself, you can listen to episode 124. <laughs> da, 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 da. That's why you need some fade-in music. FYI. And that, yeah, that's it. Well, but you're Thank right. You, though, you're listening to Ag Watchers. <laughs> <laughs> There's not many uh, feral pigs or feral goats that hitch the ride on the back of a of a truck and go from uh, you know Riverina up to Queensland or something. 
Oh, it's 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 not a risk that can be totally ignored. You know, don't let's. I hope people don't get me wrong, but um, it, it just has to be taken into context and and understood. It, it's it's not seen as a as significant risk as um as some might think it is, but it is still a risk to be mindful of. So, EID tags. So they're going to be mandatory at some point for for sheep, cattle, or the already offer cattle. So, next next topic of conversation: FMD. <laughs> Do you think it was overblown the reaction to it? Uh, well, personally, yes, yes, I do a little bit. Um, I mean, and and to give some context to that answer, I suppose um, FMD is, is is understandably concerning for everyone. That's it's 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 the doomsday scenario as far as industry is concerned. So. Uh, yeah, but I, I think, yes, certainly there was um, uh, an overplay of that in the media and, and a lot of hype and a lot of fear generated unnecessarily, I think, um, and probably a good lesson for those of us that work in industry and government with regards to our communication. Um, but that being said, you know, a lot of us were out there in the media trying to to calm the situation and, and put some good messages across them. They just weren't getting picked up. I don't, know, I don't know. I think some of us were... were... Matt and I did a bit of calming. We were we were a soothing voice. We got, <coughs> but it we got, took a while. We, we got some it feedback. We got a feedback from a chief vet of a particular state yesterday, who said they were extremely uh, happy with the way that we've written our articles to be so simple and straight to the point and objective. So that was nice feedback. It was good to see this. That's lovely feedback. But somebody somebody, appreci somebody appreciates what we do in this articles. industry. Articles coming from simpletons is always going to be a simple article, aren't they? Exactly. <laughs> well, you know what Einstein said? Um, e equals MC squared, didn't he? And he also said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it. I think, um, I think that we have to sort of see it as an opportunity to remind people about the importance of, of biosecurity. I mean, I find it interesting because I used to work as a biosecurity extension officer New South Wales, and we used to talk about, um, you know, the threat of FMD always because, uh, well, for obvious reasons. And it, it, it always seemed to be something that... Um, it's far away. You know, yeah, that's right. Um, Not for the so, likes of me raised in the foothills of Scotland through 2001 as disaster... It was a this. terrible time... <laughs> Terrible Walk, Walking through the undulating rolling hills of Scotland, seeing the beasts on fire. Oh, it was a tough time. Well, so, and, and to your point, <laughs> to your point, <laughs> before your soliloquy continues, um, you know, I, I, I think uh, because we, we are on an island, really, down here, a big old island, we don't import animals, um, we don't livestock, we don't import you know, a lot of things that would bring us a tremendous amount of problems with regards to genetic material and things like that. We're very careful about how we screen that. Well, remember, uh, the pig, remember, remember the pig industry, Matt? Mm -hmm. That fellow from... Uh, oh, in WA. From? WA. Yeah, who was bringing in this, the, uh, the semen in uh, head and shoulders bottles. Well, we don't operate in a zero-risk environment, but what I'm saying is that there's a legal framework around these things and we're very selective they, about our border in that sense. They went and, to jail. They went to jail, didn't they? That, yeah, five, five years. Mm. Yeah. 
But the mm-hmm. but borders are yeah, naturally but... porous. That's why you can still buy cocaine and heroin and whatever else here. So it's, stuff can get through easily. Yeah, but you, well, you, can, you can you can never have a border that's a hundred percent secure. Those you items can, we are don't operate. In. Sorry, Matt. Those items are coming in because they're illegal on, the, on the black market. They're not going to import FMD in because and then try and sell it somehow. And, no, but but yeah. I'm saying that meat can come through grey channels and illegal channels because, yeah, yeah, of course, of because course. you can't you can't systems... check every everything. That's right. It's not a zero risk in environment. So, but what I'm saying is, legally, we don't allow the importation of a lot of these things. That you know, that if we actually shared a physical border with another country, we would be um, having a lot more difficulty with regards to a lot of the infectious diseases that are out there. So, I think you know, it's. I, I think for the sheep industry, we're we're sort of we're not really match fit. Um, you know, when it comes to exotic diseases and the endemic diseases that we do have, which costs the industry millions of dollars a year. What we always used to talk about was that, you know, really effective management of those things and, and thinking about your own farm and the, the measures that you can put in, in control and in place there. That's what's going to stand you in very good stead should we ever have something more nasty blow up. Um, but biosecurity's always had a really, really tough sell out there. And so I suppose we look at, you know, I guess the attention on foot and mouth disease now as an opportunity to communicate about why we ask farmers to have biosecurity plans and what it all means and how do you how do you incorporate that as everyday risk management on your property? So what do you reckon the government's response, new government, Labour government, Murray Watt, who hasn't still yet to come on the podcast, but I won't name and shame. Uh, oops. Uh, the What's the response been? Scorecard out of 10. Actually, scorecard for the music first out of 10. Oh, no, no minus, no minus numbers. Don't put me in that situation. I'll give you a, um, a four. Yeah, solid four. that's a solid four. That's better than I was that's, expecting. So. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I was hoping for a four. And I was, I was, I, I was hoping for a two, or a, maybe <laughs> yeah. a two, two and a half. But that's uh, four is pretty good. Um, four for effort, you know. Very kind. It's very kind. Uh, eight for enthusiasm. Um, Murray Watts or the government's response to FMD. Um, look, I, I think we sort of give him an, uh, probably give him an eight or a nine, really. Um, so our our music know. gets a four and his response gets an eight. Well, we have to, I guess, you know, everyone is, is obviously going to be in a bit of a honeymoon phase with the new government at the moment. Um, but certainly his reputation out there amongst industry and our interactions with him in responding to this um, are generally received as being pretty good. And, you know, obviously FMD was detected in Indonesia um, a while before it hit the media, and uh, um, the government well, was it hit, it hit quite some, active. It's hit some media a lot earlier, if you consider us as being media. Are you media now? Mm, I don't, don't know. I'm not quite sure what we are. Oh, you're considering a, a journalistic career, aren't you? Well, I'm waiting for ABC to give me a call up, but mm. ABC, if you're listening, <laughs> we're hopeful. We're hopeful. We're hopeful. They'd like give us a little. Warwick, Warwick, Clint, Belinda. You know, I'm waiting. Um. No, okay. I, mean, I mean, in terms of his responsiveness and his interaction within industry and, and putting the effective things in place, and you've had Mark Ship on your, on your podcast as well. Well, we um, I did have Mark Ship. Didn't I get Murray Watt, though? But, you know, so he's been responsive in some ways, but maybe not others. Well, I can drop the good word in for you guys if you would like. Um, it's yeah. okay. Some people are clearly not as brave to come on the podcast. It's okay for Raf, but anyway. Um, the opposition's performance are a 10. In context of, of, 
of the blow up about FMD, I'm guessing we're talking about, I would put it about a four. <laughs> uh, oh, so there is good as, as, as good as our music. <laughs> <laughs> That that gives a it's, bit more context about how bad our music was. Andrew. Mm. Uh, look, it's 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 disappointing to to say the least. And um, obviously, we've got the Senate inquiry hearings coming up. Um, and if you want to but, hear more you know, about that Senate inquiry, you can listen to episode one thirty three. You having a raff with Raf Shikoni. And you are listening to Ag Watchers <laughs> with Bonnie Skinner. Ah. Um, yeah, no, I always find it funny when you listen when you listen to some podcast, yeah, like, and it says like halfway through, and you are listening to such and such, and you're like, well, you don't join an episode midway through, do you? So I've never really understood that. But anyway, we're not professional <laughs> podcasters, so maybe we should be saying that. You are listening to Ag Watchers with Bonnie Skinner, Matt Dalglish, and Andrew Whitelaw. Carry on. Well, I I was just going to say, I guess it's it's not some of the behaviour that's uh, that's been going on publicly is just not not helpful in uh, in a potential crisis situation. So it has been disappointing uh, to say the least. Um, and and a lot of what seems to be you know fear mongering out there by that side of politics, which I think has calmed down now. Um, but I think uh, you know it's an interesting point of view to put across publicly. Um, once you've been the ones that have uh, held government for a significant chunk of time. So I suppose some of those things might get unpacked in the, in the Senate inquiry. Um, but the important thing is, is that obviously we're just, uh, <laughs> we're trying to collaborate because biosecurity is kind of everyone's deal. So um, politics and politicizing it doesn't actually serve anyone any good. Yeah, it should be bi- bipartisan is a better way when it comes to things like that. that should, so important. We we're all Jock Thompson's bands at the end of the day. I... <laughs> Hi, So, China. So this week there was a lot of rumours, a lot of spe- speculation on Monday that the the walls were falling in, the sky was falling, and China was going to ban mm. everything from Australia mm. and New Zealand. Turned out to be a bit of nonsense. Yeah. So, so is there a concern that you have? Is that you know the market did get spooked? And going even going back to FMD, the market was starting to get spooked by FMD, even though it wasn't here from the point of view of you know, people buying cattle, but also people investing in Australian agriculture. Mm. But I think it's interesting, and it's, you can say it's a comment or a question, it's interesting how things can spook the market so quickly. Like it only takes like, I read the article that that rumor came from, it was from some, it was more two-bit than us in terms of... Uh, the source, like it was some weak Chinese sort of rag. It wasn't even a newspaper. It was like a community website. Yeah, there was there was something put up on a website which was then sort of quickly changed and taken down. Um, but, yeah, everything did kick into overdrive very quickly. And uh, it's amazing how quickly confidential information spreads <laughs> um, as well. never ceases to amaze me outside of, of the appropriate channels. But... Um, yeah, the the China one is interesting because we we ultimately don't need to be put in that situation with that particular trading partner, and um and I think we should be learning some lessons out of the FMD crisis. But I I guess to your point, I'm interested in what you guys think as uh, as analysts. If I'm allowed to ask you the question, 
with yeah. regards to you know i think you'll find that anything. i think you'll find that we're the ones doing the interviewing so bonnie will <laughs> we'll take that on notice well just just from your point of view you know i guess the 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 influence that we saw on the markets with regards to the fmd scare and and also what's happening in other global markets with regards to things like inflationary pressures you know how much of that is is having an effect on on markets as well is what we're seeing purely the result of of an fmd scare or or are the factors at play at the same time uh i think if you're talking price reaction with livestock i think the first Probably the first kind of bit of sell-off was, was I think, non-FMD, but there was definitely a, a period of about two weeks, about a fortnight mm. ago, where, where there was definite panic selling and it, and it was over. And, and, what, and what did we say, Matt? If, if I want to go back, episode 131, uh, if you listen to the Ag Watchers episode. What? The episode chronologer or something at the moment. Just, well, I, I just happened just to have a, I just happened to have the list of episodes there, <laughs> and what we talked about. And we did say that people needed to calm down about FMD, and we said it would be a price correction in the Eki, and we said it would start to bounce from here. And what has it done? It's gone up a hundred cents since then. So hmm. I'm not saying but, you're the oracle, but no, well, I was, was going to start referring to you as Rain Man with all the numbers you're firing out with the episode numbers. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Actually, funnily enough, yeah, I've realised that uh, almost every time I stayed in a hotel lately, I mm. in Canberra, mm. I've ended up watching Goodwill Hunting, and not even realised I'd watched it the previous time. It's a good film. So maybe I'm more like uh, Matt Damon. I was going to say more like Rain Man to this today's podcast. So anyway, what was the question? <laughs> oh, she's gone. <laughs> Bonnie was. Cr- I was asking about- you guys a question. I thought. <laughs> yeah, but I, f- I forgot the second part. I Inflation. You relish the opportunity to In- talk about yourselves. Well, I was more looking for questions about my tenure in Australia. Um, Did you infl- say ten years? I thought you said twelve years. Tenure. <laughs> uh, t- twelve years, wasn't it? Tenure. My time. <laughs> Dad joke from the the Lowe's guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Inflation, inflationary pressure. I oh, see. This is how I feel when <laughs> inflationary pressures. Yeah. This is what, worse than Gabby Chan. Uh, inflationary pressure. Yeah. I, I think inflationary pressure is. We've had. Have we argued about this, Matt? Or oh, were you in agreement it, when, eventually? With me? When we had when we had Kukulis on ages back. What episode was that, Rain Man? Um, we spoke about the prospect of inflationary pressures and the potential of stagflation, but. Um, yeah, no, they're definite. They're definitely real things going on. I can't deny that. With the uh, the, the rise in uh, or the problems with the supply chain we've seen since COVID and Russian aggression and everything else, that they you know, the inflationary things are a real thing, and it's feeding through to, to ag. Episode one hundred and one, FYI. But when uh, I still think that when we look at things like uh, wool, that definitely has to come under some sort of discretionary spend pressure. Lamb. Wagyu, I still look at it and think, well, maybe I'm just a negative Nelly. Um, but I just see that there's things are too expensive at that inflation rate and high prices are cure for high prices. So we should see some downward pressure in some commodities. No? That's, that's not panic related. That's not, well, most of this inflation is supply related anyway. Mm. But if we come to have an actual recession, we should see <clears throat> a downward impact on our high value goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, maybe. I'm not. I'm not as convinced we're going to see as big a global downturn as you know what 
people are. Uh, I, didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't say we would. I said if we saw. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah fair I'm, enough. Don't want to Because certainly the, it looks as though when you're looking at what's happening in the US presently, the the economy there's reacted, you know, to the to the interest rate increases. So there's some suggestion now that we might start to see rates coming off again by the middle of next year in the US, which is and that's because the interest rate rises have done their job in terms of cooling some of that um, that problematic kind of inflation. I'm, st- I'm still like like you know I'm not I'm not a scholar of economics. I'm a, mm. I'm uh, just a, a simple man. Um, how does increasing interest rates, right, mm. at a time of supply-led inflation, help with 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 reducing spending? Well, anytime on, a, on, a, on, a, on essentials. Yeah, it, it, it's it's on, still on, t- on inelastic goods. You're still going to be spending on inelastic goods like beer. Yeah, you have yeah. to buy beer and wine. You've got no choice. You can't mm-hmm. limit your consumption, can you? Yeah. Are, are, are you asking? Are you asking the question and answering it? Or are you waiting for an answer? I'm just going to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> You're right in the sense that if it's a supply-led inflationary increase, right, which is what we're saying, that that the the interest rate rise is more impactful upon consumption and demand. Mm-hmm. But that's they're, they're they're the only levers that the the, the government can or the, or the reserve banks acting on behalf of the government can can pull. And mm-hmm. yeah, they they and they do they they do tend to kind of um, pull down demand and change that that framework, and so you can get reductions back in in inflationary pressures, but you're attacking the other side of the of the of the kind of market, the demand side rather than the supply side. You're giving with one hand and you're taking with the other, but in this case, you're taking with both hands. Yeah, and and if you look what happened through the seventies when they did that into the early eighties, mid eighties, we did have recessionary series mm-hmm. of recessionary phases. Um, because until you know, was... until Thatcher came along and fixed it. <laughs> yeah, so, so did I answer your question? I can't even remember what the question was. That'll do, Pig. That'll do. Yeah, that was a good answer to the question. And uh, opposing a few other questions. That's good. Hmm. So what is uh, sheep producers' response to inflationary pressure or household spending concerns? Or do you not care because it's all, all gone overseas that? anyway? <laughs> well, it's a concern. I mean, I, I guess like it's a, not a concern, it's a consideration, I suppose. As you said, we've got a, a, a premium product um, that we retail out there to a, a specific market um, and, and it's definitely uh, promoted a certain way. So it is a concern. I think it'll be interesting to see what impact it does have. That's sort of why I was asking you guys the question. Because I, I had an interesting chat the other day with a journalist who I managed to put them on the correct track as I am wont to do. Uh, they wanted to discuss about high-value goods in Australia and why we should be keeping them in the country to, because people can't, in Australia can't afford them. So export bans, export tariffs, that type of thing. Because, you know, you've got a guy like me, a guy like Matt, just lowly analysts, plodding along. We're, we're having to eat soy, tofu, corn, because we can't afford lamb. So how, how are we supposed to eat red meat if, uh, if we can't afford it? Yeah, and it's well, all going. It's all, it's, all, looking at, uh, it's all going overseas. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt's doing his bit because he's shopping at Lowe's so that he can prioritise his spend on on more expensive red meat products. So that's, whereas, that's whereas, kind of absolutely, it. Whereas, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I got my got my priorities right. Bonnie, fashion's not important. It's what you're putting in your mouth that's important. 
Well, I suppose, as Bonnie, you've seen me at a couple of conferences, you know that I'm very suave. And so you're, I'm, spending, I'm, I'm, you're, you're spending all your money on high fashion and that's, that's why you can't afford lamb. That's why I've lost so much weight, Matt, as well. I'm just, <laughs> just, just drinking water and wafers. No, but that's, I mean, you know, to answer your question a little bit more fully, I guess, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's why there's there's been a lot of work going on, particularly um, at the MLA, Meat and Livestock Australia level, around, you know, the promotion of secondary cuts, more affordable cuts for families, um, to be able to be confident in cooking those those cuts. Um, but I think also to just go back to earlier conversation around, you know, <laughs> what does a future value-based uh, sort of system look like for the lamb industry uh, with regards to premium di- and discounts and how does that affect potentially retail prices at the end of the day if but, we've got products that could be discerned on their, their quality, which we currently don't have for the lamb industry. But I guess it does, uh, going back to the domestic market, it does, I've, I had this argument, discussion, I keep saying argument, but it doesn't have to always be an argument, Matt, does it? You argue no, with a lot no, of people. So we, we discussed it in the past life about how domestic markets in Australia are largely irrelevant or they will be irrelevant within X number of years as domestic demand or domestic demand doesn't deplete. Overseas demand increases to the point where domestic demand is irrelevant. Oh, we've seen that play out in the lamb space specifically because... Um, if you go, mutton. You know, mutton. Well, mutton's, get, mutton's get, no longer eaten here. Example, yeah, mm. but, so, but you've got you've got mutton going from about six kilos per person per year down to less than you know a kilo. It's down even less than half a kilo. It's about three hundred fifty grams per person per year now. Um, and you've got lamb that's gone from about twelve kilos down to six kilos. So you know they're yeah. they're both on on that downward trajectory, and that's all to do with the growth in that export sector and the fact that you know lamb lamb is one of those um, niche products that can go and and the the demand prospects are still pretty strong. So there's no, you know, there's no way in the next, you know, five to ten years that you're going to see lamb really getting any cheaper in Australia. It's still going to continue to rise, I think. So one of the good things about this podcast is we don't provide questions or agendas, so we can allows us to branch off into different areas and discuss different things. But we're always talking with people in know people who have got the required knowledge to answer the question. Sheep sustainability, yeah. I haven't read it, by the way, so I'm just going to make up some stuff now. So you guys have put out Sheep Sustainability. You mean our, our framework? Yeah, ships, yeah, that's the one. Sheep Sustainability Framework, which was launched in Bendigo, I believe, a month ago. Is that right? The annual report. The first the first year of reporting of the data was, was launched in Bendigo at the Sheep Show, yep. So can I give – we spoke about this in the past, I think, at the – we spoke about this with uh, the Lambassador event. Uh, which was back in June or July, mm. or I think it was June. Which, because as a as a as a somebody who did the uh, sheep leadership program, I was invited because I'm a sheep leader, as we all know. Can I? What is the policy of sheep producers on uh, haggis? In, <laughs> in in terms of if we look at that as a product, a lot of those products, those giblets and whatever else, go in the bin or into dog food. But haggis is a high-value, high-protein, uh, high in iron, rich in oxidants, antioxidants. How do we get that across? How do, how do we get funding from sheep producers or MLA to encourage the intake of offal? And are, are you guys looking? Oh, I, I imagine you guys are looking at this, like seriously contemplating it at most of your meetings. 
and how, supporting how, but, supporting producers like Packton Park. Packton Park. Heard, yeah, which was had on episode. Uh, I've got to say that's about <laughs> episode eighty. It was one of my favourite ones. Uh, but yeah, but but in ninety six. Uh, but episode ninety six, you were watching Ag Watchers. But so, how much support is Emily and the meat industry in general giving to Awful? Well, for, for human I, consumption. For human consumption, I—I I mean, I have to sort of question or, that with. Or Scottish consumption depends if you can call them humans. Do you know what the uh, the current domestic demand is for awful products for consumption in Australia? And it's, I guess that—that's not the—that's not the point. It's not I'm where just it asking is. The, just asking it's, the it's, question. It's where it can go. You know, you've got to think positively. I can tell you that it is roughly two tons per week of haggis. Uh, that is produced by Patton Park, and about four tons per week in December and January on the run-up to Burns Night. Uh, if you want to know more about Patton Park, listen to episode ninety-three. Because we did. Was it ninety-six? We... You said ninety-six. Shit, ninety-six. <laughs> but listen to ninety-three as well, because that was a really good one with Jonathan Kingsman, <laughs> called Commodity import... Conversations. Are they the only domestic producers of uh, of haggis? They are the premium uh, producer of uh, domestic haggis, black pudding, and pork pies in Australia. Uh, With domestic I, sheep offal? 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. This is a patriotic company. And if you want to know more about them, listen to episode 96. Or visit their website at pactonpark.com.au. One day, we're gonna get, one, one day we're going to get a sponsor, Matt. Crocs haven't given us anything, but Pacton Park is a likely. Well, we've, been, we've been promised one of those Chieftain Haggis each, I think. So we've, been, pro- we've, we've been promised a tour. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure he said a Chieftain Haggis for each of us. Which we, think, you know. Well, if he didn't, I'm going to say he did. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> if, uh, anyway, Bonnie, sorry, I've just completely been a bit tangential. <laughs> and... Um, so go on, tell us what you guys are planning to do to uh, assist in human growth and human development through sustainable use of awful, the superfood that well, I is. Can't, I can't say in terms of where significant spending is allocated to look at growing particular segments of the market and products. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like awful is a, is a key focus of that. Um, <laughs> you know, I think the domestic demand for awful products has definitely decreased over time um that is you know, the wrong way of looking at it completely snapped, i don't i don't like to just, criticize just, i'm just saying you've, you've said that the mass demand has decreased okay but that's where it is just now we're at a low base and we can have additionality we can say let's bring it up to hundred thousand tons of haggis I'm not, a year i'm not cutting you off at the chase i'm just saying that that's that's probably you know reasons why uh, that investment has gone down, and a lot of our our products would be getting exported off overseas, where there there is more demand for them. So it does. They they higher market overseas. But Andrew, that's right. I'm just, I'm just thinking. Just, I'm just thinking carbon neutrality. Twenty well, CN twenty thirty. What I'm thinking, Andrew, is you and I have people that enjoy the consumption of haggis and offal <laughs> ourselves. Why would we be encouraging other people to buy it and make it more expensive for ourselves? Because I like to ensure that people get a nutritious diet. No, I'm I'm not about myself. I'm about everyone else. I'm I'm a people person. You know, I'm just trying to do nice. Just trying to do nice just, things. Just, just trying to help. Just trying to help, mate. So can we set up a round table? Maybe you can speak to your mate Jason Strong, and uh, we'll get this thing moving. We'll have a we'll get Sam Burke to do some black pudding. 
some haggis. There is definitely funding available for people who want to develop innovative products, I think. You know, not that haggis is um, it's a fairly traditional product, isn't it? But uh, things like, you know, mutton bacon, a couple of other things that have come to the fore have come through those sorts of programs and initiatives. So, you know, innovation is always uh, encouraged in this industry. And if you've got a good idea, pies. you should bring it forward. Scotch pies. Mutton pies. Mutton pies, yeah. That's what we need to do. We need to bring scotch pies to the football. Not that I watch football, with a pint of bovril or a cup of bovril. Or oxo, depending on which part of the bovril. Bovril with, bovril with pepper. So anyway, I'm just I'm just like I like to give some ideas out there, free free pro bono ideas. Um and that's something the industry could potentially take up is, you know, mutton pies, haggis and black pudding. We should ask um, the producers who are the ones that contribute their levies to the development of these products, whether that's a, a serious um, priority for them. The producers, uh, the, the producers aren't the ones eating it. It's, it's the market. The market demands haggis and black pudding. I feel, a, I feel a, um, an article coming on, if you guys haven't uh, done one already, <clears throat> exploring this topic. I think maybe there will be. <laughs> It might end up being awful, though. Yeah, an awful article, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, I, there we I, go. I, think... I am going to have to go soon because I have to go to the gym. You know, to... I think we've exhausted the haggis conversation, I feel. It's come to a natural conclusion. It has. Any other closing points of wisdom, Bonnie, on or just some compliments about how good Ag Watchers is, how good TM is, whatever? Well, I am very uh, grateful you've uh, had me on here for a second time in such a short a short interval, so that's very much appreciated. And it is important what you do uh, because there are a lot of people that listen to you, so it's good to have a bit of a chinwag about some of these things. I, I find, um, particularly around EID, there are a lot of misconceptions out there. And like I said, it's, it's sort of a poorer cousin to biosecurity and we have to really change the way that we view this these systems and invest in them accordingly. So. It was it was fabulous having you on, Bonnie, as well. And I think with the new intro music, we'll even have even more listeners tuning oh, in, I'm sure. I reckon we'll have the, – the numbers will just go through the roof. And and when we bring out our album uh, in November, in mm-hmm. in time for the Christmas charts. Yep, the Christmas album, yep. yep. I just, we I might, just, do, I, might I, do a la, last Christmas rendition, a wham last Christmas. I just didn't think we could get any lore on this podcast, but we managed to. I think <laughs> we managed to – I think we, we – it almost seems like you can't sabotage this podcast. It's so terrible, the music. I actually quite liked the um, just the two of us. I thought that was going to be your, you know, your consistent. I thought that was quite sweet. Oh, we're, we're planning. Cool. We're planning a whole lot of songs we're going to destroy for people. So, <laughs> so what we want is a list of all the songs that people really like. Really like, yeah. <laughs> so they can never listen to them again. But the, but the just the two of us, we have had feedback that it has grown on them after the mm-hmm. initial like, dis- just after, like, after just- the initial disgust. Just like the uh, the original music, there's a lot of people that like the the hokey Clint Jasper kind of favourite music. There's a lot that like that. So you know, we, I think we might just keep mixing it up, Andrew. A bit of bit of the music, the traditional stuff, bit of bit of a song here and there. It's all good. So Bonnie, if you, like... could, if, if you could sing us out, that would be great, Bonnie. Thanks. <laughs> like a happy anniversary. So happy anniversary. Oh, that that's a good one, Kylie Minogue. I think I think um, love will keep us together, Captain and Tennille. I think you could do a pretty good rendition on that one. I think you should put that in your 
rotation. I don't know who that is. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm old enough to remember them, so that's all right. <laughs> Age has got nothing to do with it, but yeah, Matt knows mm. what I'm talking about. I do. I'll have to. I'll, I'll, next time we go on a road trip, Andrew, we'll get that one out so you can have a listen to it. It's, it's quite a good one. It's classic. You know, I don't, it's I don't, great. I don't know the names of songs. I just listen to music. Mm. So. There we go. All right. Well, no, it was fantastic having you on again, Bonnie, for uh, your insights and wisdom and all things traceability. And um, I think we'll uh, we'll have to see you when you've got nothing on. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate it. Ciao for now.